Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. We've spent these many weeks talking about the Nicene Creed and some of the theological implications inherent in the Creed. The Creed, of course, doesn't come exactly from the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople. It's really a summation of the apostolic teaching that's assembled at those two councils. And it's a little bit of a mixtape of pieces drawn from baptismal creeds used in various different parts of the early church. That being said, the council is this big event. A decade before the Council of Nicaea, Christians are still being rounded up and executed just for being Christian. Being a Christian is this very dangerous occupation. You have to be so committed to Christianity that you're willing to die to go to church every Sunday. And then, by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea, 10-15 years later, the Roman Empire is literally paying the way of bishops to come to this council so that all Christians can kind of get straight on what they all believe, when they all celebrate various feasts, so that there can be this kind of agreement across the empire. But the council is made up of people who spent most of their Christian life living under these conditions of mass violence towards Christians. So one chronicler of the council calls it an assembly of martyrs, because there are bishops missing eyes, bishops missing arms, bishops who have been almost tortured to death and barely survived. There are all these marks of the persecutions that the Roman Empire has levied against Christians for the previous hundreds of years. But now everything is different. So the Emperor Constantine is um, becoming more and more Christian, and his Christianity is affecting Roman public policy. So he does things like fixing a portion of the revenues of the state for charity to be given away by the church to the poor. He erects these new protections for children and slaves and peasants and prisoners, these classes that nobody cared about before Christianity. In 316, he he declares this edict that criminals can no longer be branded on the face. So in the olden days, pre-316, if you were caught stealing, you might get a big brand on your face, kind of like the scarlet letter. You have this big mark on your face so that everybody knows you're untrustworthy, you're a thief. And Constantine says, you can no longer do that. You can no longer brand people in the face because the face is the image and likeness of God. In 321, he closes all the courts on Sundays, so you can no longer have a court case on Sundays, except for one reason, and that one reason is to free slaves, because Christ desires freedom for all people. He deprecates Sunday labor. He does all these things that seem very openly Christian. And so, rather than being this underground, secret cult, which if they catch you being a part of this cult, they will kill you. The state is now saying, Christianity, not so bad. You know, we're not officially a Christian state, but we like what we're seeing here. And this leads to an interesting situation. So a decade before, everybody is so dedicated to Christianity that they're willing to die for their faith. Now people are kind of dabbling. 
And so you might go into a shop, and you might be looking through the fancy cloak section, and you might find a cloak that has these kind of interwoven themes of Jesus and Dionysus. And to any Christian from who lived, you know, 10 to 15 years before, that would be the most incomprehensibly horrific offense that you could possibly make. But now weavers are just trying to make a buck, you know? Let's, why not make a garment that appeals to both sides? Or people are trying to keep, keep all their bases covered. Why not say a prayer to Dionysus? Say a prayer to Christ? They use wine in both liturgies? You know, what's really the difference? Everything seems to have changed. Uh, Pope Leo I writes about how frustrating it was to go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and find all the parishioners out in front of the church saying a prayer to the sun god before going into the church. And he's like, what are you guys doing? You have no, what, what is this? There was a uh, bishop of Troy under Julian the Apostate, the emperor after Constantine, who decided to take everything back to the old pagan ways, or at least Platonism. There was this, this bishop of Troy who said that he felt no compunction about um, quitting being a Christian bishop and sort of becoming a leader in, in one of Julian's pagan cults because he had never ceased to be a sun worshiper. He had never stopped worshiping the unconquerable sun, the god of the sun. So you have this kind of weird situation where pre-Constantine, everybody who's in the church is 100% into the church because they're willing to die to be a Christian. After Constantine, you have a very broad range of Christian practice, Christian identity. Gregory of Nyssa writes about this time, and he says that one of the most frustrating things about all this is not the fact that a shopkeeper will have a little altar to Christ and a little altar to Mercury side by side, which of course to him is incredibly offensive and super weird and crazy. But the most frustrating thing is that nobody prays anymore. I mean, there are these hardcore Christians for whom their Christianity is their life, but for all these kind of dabblers, they don't take the time to pray. He's not mad at them. He doesn't want them purged out of the church. He doesn't want them all uh, to renounce their Christianity because they're not real Christians or whatever. He wants them to become real Christians. But he says, everyone devotes all his energy to the work he has in hand, forgetting completely the work of prayer, because he thinks that the time he gives to God is lost to the work he's prepared to do. This is in his text on the Lord's Prayer. And he says that if you are a shopkeeper, it is no problem for you to set the alarm for 4 a.m. to get to your shop, to make sure everything is turned on, opened up, looking pretty by 6 a.m. If you are a customer, it's no problem for you to set the alarm for 4 a.m. to make sure that you're at the shop at 6 a.m. so you're going to get the best products at the best prices, whatever it is. He said it's the same for someone who is preparing to uh, make a defense before a judge. He's, been, he's happy to do a ton of work putting together his defense. It's the same for the judge. The judge spends a lot of time getting ready for his work on the bench. This is true for people who make shoes, people who make windows. It's just everybody is working really, really hard, is putting a ton of effort into making money, earning respect, getting raises, building bigger shops, hearing more cases as a judge, whatever it is. But nobody is really giving time to God because it's not productive. It's kind of a waste of time. It's like a leisure activity. 
But then on the other side, when you are resting from all of your labors, when you're resting from making money and impressing people and getting promotions and making more shoes, etc., etc., prayer is not seen as the way you rest either. So it's not a leisure activity that you want to undertake. And it seems like not much has changed over the past 1,700 years. We also spend tons and tons of time working. We work super hard. Americans, folks all over the world, are just working so much these days. Crazy long hours, you know, the 35-hour work week, the 40-hour work week. These are things of the past. People just work insane amounts. And then when they're not at work, they're checking their work email at home. They're thinking about work tomorrow. They're recovering from working a 12-hour shift of manual labor. Work is just all-consuming these days. And then our leisure time is basically just the process of recovery. We want to turn our brains off, lay our bodies down. We want to look at a phone for four hours or watch something on Netflix or just not think or have a drink or eat a hamburger, whatever it is. Our leisure time is basically kind of wrestling with our exhaustion from working all the time. And so if you have to fit prayer into one of these activities, does it make you more money Does it make you more productive Um, or does it help you relax after the day is done? Does it kind of turn your brain off? It doesn't obviously fit into either of those categories. And so maybe we have time for a teeny tiny prayer before bed, or maybe we have time for a teeny tiny prayer before a meal, or maybe even when we wake up in the morning, or maybe when we're on a turbulent airplane flight or we want to get an A on a test, or we can't find a parking space. But this, for Gregory, this is not what the Christian life should look like. Instead of being not a part of our productivity, prayer, says Gregory, is the essence of what it is to be working in the world. Like it is the absolutely one essential thing to the work that we do. If work is preceded by prayer, Gregory says, Sin will find no entrance into the soul. And what he means by this is that if you are beginning your work with prayer, and if prayer, in a sense, infuses your work, then sin is not the goal of your work. So for the farmer, he says, without prayer, his whole goal is just farming as much as he possibly can, getting as much grain as he possibly can, selling as much as he possibly can, just making the biggest buck, buying a bigger farm and a bigger farm and a bigger farm and being the richest farmer in the world. The physician, according to Gregory, if if she is uh, not undertaking her work with prayer, her goal is to become a famous physician and a much demanded physician and a physician that can charge a higher hourly rate and a physician who has celebrities come to her clinic and for that matter a physician who has a Maserati and a second house in Aspen and a, I don't know a helicopter these become literally the things that she is working for her raison d'etre prayer says gregory makes the farmer think i'm going to farm what is necessary. I'm going to have enough grain to feed my family. And the extra I have, I'm going to give away. Or I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to do good works with the money that I have. The physician, when she is thinking about her job, when her life is suffused with prayer, her goal is to help, is to serve, is to heal, is to make well. 
Her goal is not Maseratis and a house in Aspen. Her goal is serving other people. And this is true for every vocation, for every job we do, whether we are sweeping floors or crunching numbers or CEOing a Fortune 500 company. It's our prayer life that gives our work meaning because we remember what the meaning of our work actually is. It keeps our eyes focused on why we're doing what we're doing and not letting us get lost in the extraneous, the unhelpful, the idolatrous, the pointless parts of work. What's more, says Gregory, you want to talk about a leisure activity? There is nothing better than prayer. Prayer, he says, is the delight of the joyful as well as the solace of the afflicted. It is the wedding crown of the spouses and the festive joy of a birthday, no less than the shroud that enwraps us in death. Prayer is intimacy with God and contemplation of the invisible. It satisfies our yearnings and makes us equal to the angels. Prayer is the enjoyment of things present and the substance of things to come. Prayer for Gregory is all the delights of heaven. It is the angelic life. It is the joy of unity with God, contemplation of God. It is the fulfillment of all of our desires. It is rest for the weary. It is solace to the afflicted. It is everything that we are looking for in this life is summed up in the peace and the joy and the goodness of God that we encounter in prayer. And yet, we will do anything for a billion dollars. We will struggle so hard to get into a really great college. We will struggle so hard to get the better promotion, or to date the right person, or to impress a room full of people. But prayer, we don't really have time for. That's just, it's less important. It's not really uh, something that actually matters very much. It's It's kind of like Pilates, but it doesn't get you in shape or maybe like uh, some sort of contemplative uh, reading program, but doesn't actually help you very much. It's like self-help without a point. And Gregory's like, no, you're insane. Prayer is literally the most important, most joyful, most powerful, most comforting, most amazing thing that a human being can do because prayer is intimacy with God. So if you have a best friend and she says to you, Hey, I forgot to mention this, but on Wednesday I'm moving to Malawi and you continue to check in with her every day after her move, she will stay your best friend. If you guys are FaceTiming or Skyping or emailing or writing letters or whatever, you're going to hear about how hard it is to live in a different culture, how beautiful Malawi is, how kind the people are, how wonderful the food is. You're going to hear about the day she gets into a car wreck and has to navigate the Malawian justice system. You're going to hear about the day that she meets the person she's eventually going to marry. You're going to, you're going to really be an intimate part of her life. But if she moves to Malawi and then you say, oh yeah, let's, uh, you know, I'll call you on your birthday. You're going to call her on her birthday a year later And you're going to say, how's Malawi? And she's going to say, oh, it's great. You know, the weather's really nice most of the time. Oh, I met this great guy. We're actually getting married. I have a new car. You know, it's, it's it's been a great year. You're really not going to have any level of intimacy with her. She's really going to no longer be your best friend. 
you might have a lot of goodwill towards her. You might have the sense that you still really care about her and, and it may be mutual, but it's not the depth of intimate friendship that you had when you were seeing each other four nights a week. And it's the same with God. So if you just check in with God when you really need something or really want something, or you just check in with God for like a millisecond before bed or, uh, you know, the, the 10 second prayer before a meal or whatever, do you really have a depth of intimacy with him? Do you really have that closeness of friendship? And if the answer is no, the fault is not on his side because God feels infinite love for each one of us. So if we're not praying, it doesn't do God any harm. He's not frustrated with us. It doesn't make him mad. He doesn't have his feelings hurt. It's not like you forgot to send him a card on his birthday. For God, prayer doesn't do anything. It's just a gift that he gives to us. And we can choose to use that gift or not. But in no way does prayer get you more into God's good graces. In no way does prayer convince God to like you more or to think you're a better person or whatever. That's not what prayer is for. So if we do want intimacy with God, if we do want friendship with God, if we do want that depth of relationship with God, well, how are we supposed to pray? For Gregory, and basically for all Christians, the Lord's Prayer is the archetype of prayer. Because when the disciples came to Christ and said, John taught his disciples to pray, can you teach us how we should pray? This is the prayer that he gives them to say. We have these two different versions of it in the New Testament. And they're worded differently, and they both contain the same basic structure and material. So the Lord's Prayer for Christians is the most important prayer. It is the kind of like prayer 101 and also the doctoral level of prayer. It is prayer par excellence. And in that prayer, there's something interesting and kind of confusing. We are told to pray, Gregory tells us, for our daily bread for our basic needs, like the stuff we need to survive until tomorrow, we're told to ask God for. So we're not supposed to be these kind of like fake saints who only care about world peace. Oh Lord, you know, just forget about me. I only want, uh, you know, world peace and for all the children to be well. That's just not real because what you're actually thinking is like, oh, I really hope that I don't have to pay the stupid parking ticket that I got and I would really love a new refrigerator because the thing in our refrigerator broke and it drives me insane while well, you're pretending to be just holy and perfect. No, you're supposed to actually pray for what you need. So we are supposed to be real with God and pray for what is really on our hearts that we actually need. However, Gregory warns us, Christ also says, when you pray, do not babble. And he says that uh, the Greek word that Christ uses is batalogia, um, which is sort of like uh, this like empty vein talking. And so he says, what is empty vein talking? But for Gregory, this is not a question of how many prayers you say or how long you talk to God. Because he says, you know, we're also called to be like the woman dealing with the unjust judge who like bugs the judge and bugs the judge and bugs the judge, will not give up talking to the judge until he gives justice. Uh, not because God is like an unjust judge, but, he, but Christ says, you know, if that works for some awful judge, how is the source of all goodness going to respond to that? So babbling is not a question of how many words you use or how long your prayer goes on. 
It's not a question of being super succinct. Instead, it's a question of the content of our prayer. And he says that batologia, babbling in prayer, is basically articulating empty desire for vain pleasures. So for Gregory, if you are praying that you will get away with some heinous crime, that's not really a good prayer. That is batologia. But also, if you were just praying that uh, this guy who has been very condescending to you will be humiliated in a big group of people, that is also batologia. If you desperately want a really fancy car or watch or some possession that will show everyone that you yourself are very fancy and deserve their respect and this will win honor and esteem for you, also batologia. If you are asking God to support you in your covetousness or your uh, licentiousness or whatever it is, that's, that's vain prayer. That's like Gregory says, you are asking God to be your servant in your own ridiculous, crazy schemes. But for Gregory, the most extreme kind of batologia is prayer for the suffering of others. We sometimes think that we're reading in the Old Testament prayer for the suffering of others, that uh, you know, my enemy would be defeated and his children would be fatherless and there would be no one to take care of them. And, and Gregory says that we misunderstand these psalms and these prayers. They are not actually prayers for the death and suffering of other people. They're prayers for the annihilation of evil himself, of the enemy and the demons. So he says, no saint desires anything evil, but prays for the correction of evils. So he gives the example, one who prays that there be no sick or poor does not want them exterminated, but that sickness and want should cease. So if I'm praying, oh Lord, you know, please wipe out all poverty. I don't mean, Lord, please kill all poor people. I mean, wipe out the institution of poverty. And for Gregory, if someone in scripture is praying for the destruction of evil, it's the destruction of the evil that has possessed people, the destruction of the evil that they have given themselves over to, not the people themselves. So anyone, Gregory says, who prays for violence or death is like the master of batologia. This is the prime example of vain prayers, of wicked prayers, of babbling in your prayers. So we avoid this babble. But we do pray for what we need. We are not these just selfless creatures who don't care about ourselves. Part of a healthy relationship with God is recognizing our dependence on him. So whatever it is that we actually need, we should be praying for. Whether that's literally our daily bread, whether that is our own sense of comfort and peace in life, whether that is joy, whether that is an end to aloneness or an end to sadness, whether that is uh, a farmer who prays for rain, someone praying for an upcoming operation, all these things are wonderful matters of prayer. But why, you may be asking yourself, do we have to pray for anything that we need at all? Are we giving God some new information? I mean, if like, does he not know that I need bread to survive today? Origin of Alexandria has a really interesting way of thinking about this. Origin, in his book on prayer, has a long kind of elaborate analogy to free will and how God interacts with our free will. But what it comes down to is basically, yeah, God doesn't need any new information from you. And 
your prayers are not powerful. You do not have a superpower in your prayer. You don't have the power to kind of make stuff happen in the world with your prayer, so you can't produce bread with your own prayer, nor can you convince God of anything. It's not as though if you pray long enough and hard enough, God is going to be like, "Uh, I guess I'm going to change my mind about you. All right, here's your bread. Um, Instead, he says that God takes our in a sense, worthless prayers, these prayers that don't have value inherent in them or power inherent in them, and he places value in them. He makes the creation respond to our prayers in such a way that our prayers do actually have efficacy in the world. So what does this look like? Well, let's say the U.S. government issues a $100 bill. That $100 bill is not intrinsically worth $100. It's maybe worth like, I don't know, 50 cents worth of expensive ink and anti-piracy technology and some fancy paper. But 50 cents worth of ink and paper is not worth $100. There's nothing inherently worth $100 in a $100 bill. However, the government and the market choose to imbue it with the value of $100. So, all of us will say, okay, we know that it's actually just a piece of paper with somebody's picture on it. However, we're going to treat it as though it has the power to buy a hundred loaves of bread or a really fancy toaster or whatever it is that you do with a hundred dollars. Even though there's no intrinsic worth to that bill, we're all going to treat it as though it has worth. And so when we do that, it actually has the power of a hundred dollars. In the same way, our prayers in and of themselves have no intrinsic power. They don't give God any new information. They certainly don't change his mind. And yet God chooses to treat our prayers as though they have incredible power. So when we do pray for things, God actually changes the structure of the world, changes the outcomes of various events. God always responds to our prayer. God always takes our prayer into account although often in ways that don't make any sense to us whatsoever. Because God is working towards better and higher things than little tiny people like me can even begin to conceptualize. William Temple, the great Archbishop of Canterbury, said, All I know is that when I pray, strange coincidences tend to happen. And when I don't pray, they don't. For anyone who is routinely praying for things, for people, for peace, for joy, for whatever it is, strange things tend to happen. And prayer for things, for outcomes in the world, that's a really important part of our prayer life. But it's far from the whole. For Gregory, again, the ultimate goal of prayer is intimacy with God. So the very beginning of prayer And in a sense, the end of prayer is to detach the mind, he says, from anything subject to flux and change, and tranquilly rest in motionless spiritual repose, and then address God by the most familiar name and say, Our Father. This is what true prayer looks like. It is focusing on God It is coming before God. It is addressing God in terms of intimacy and love. It is opening our hearts to God, revealing to him everything that we need, 
being honest and open with him about all of our fears and all of our dreams. And it is resting in his peace, his joy, his eternity. Prayer is spending time in heaven. Like so many things, getting into prayer takes establishing a habit. If you have a gym membership, even a really expensive gym membership, and you go once every six weeks, it's not going to do anything for your life. But if you develop this habit of going to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you are going to see changes in your body and your health and so forth. In the same way, if you establish a rule of prayer that you can maintain every single day, you will grow deeper in your relationship with God. If you pray every now and then, the effects will be less tangible. In Judaism, there's a practice of praying three times a day. And this is not saying three prayers a day. This is having three times a day blocked off in your calendar for the worship of God, for intimacy with God. This is a time in which faithful Jewish men and women will say prayers that are drawn from Scripture, ancient prayers that have been said for, in some cases, thousands of years. And it is a long chunk of time that you give to God three times a day, each day. And this became the practice of Christianity as well. In some places, there were three times a day which were given to God. In others, there were seven times a day. In others, eight times a day. And the number is less significant than the practice of actually doing it of establishing a habit of prayer and making sure that you have time for God each day. Like Judaism, Christianity says prayers derived from scripture, like the Psalms have always been at the heart of Christian prayer, and also various canticles, these kind of songs of scripture that are said to God. The Lord's Prayer is always said, often a confession and a creed are said, and there is time for the reading of Holy Scripture. There's also time for your own intercessions and thanksgivings, time to just open your heart to God, to tell him everything that you need. But the point, again, is not speaking to a genie and having some wishes granted. The point is intimacy with our Heavenly Father. If you are able to block off half an hour a day for God, you will see a tremendous impact on your life. If you try and block off half an hour a day for God and just sort of sit there and stare at the wall, that is really challenging. Some people can do that, but that is some sort of next level prayer. If you are a beginner in prayer, like I am, you might use something like morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer or evening prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. There are various um, other manuals of devotion, depending on your tradition. There is the Liturgy of the Hours for Roman Catholics. There are our Orthodox prayer books for the Orthodox. There are all sorts of different prayer books. But establishing a rhythm of prayer, where you're not just trying to make everything up and invent the wheel, is an incredibly huge gift to one's life. I will guarantee you the level of patience for others in your life will go way up. The level of kindness in your life will go way up. The level of peace in your own heart will go way up. The level of joy you have the capacity to take in the creation will go way up. Because when you are filling your time with God, when you are filling your life with God, then the reality of God starts to pervade all things for you. So this is a little bit about prayer 
in the practice of prayer in the early church. And next time we will be looking at some people who went really hardcore on this and went off into the desert and gave their entire lives to the practice of prayer and unintentionally founded monasticism. It's been a pleasure being with you, and I hope you'll join me again for more of the history of Christianity.